In Matraville, Sydney, New South Wales, near the iconic Maroubra beaches near Malabar, sits a correctional facility called Long Bay Jail. Long Bay houses a mix of maximum and minimum security, housing some of the country's most notorious criminals inside its doors. It's 2021, and while many of us are in lockdown watching Netflix and separated from our loved ones, a man in his mid-30s called Andrew Hamilton is sitting in a jail cell. It's his 125th day locked up on remand, and during dinner time, Andrew is scrawling on a piece of paper. He's just had a meal of freezing cold fish lentil curry, and it leaves a foul taste in his mouth. But he continues to eat and writes in his journal a few comical commentaries about the quality of the food, as though he were a critic for a three Michelin star restaurant. Tomorrow is his trial day and he'll find out whether he will spend the rest of his life in prison. But Andrew isn't too different to you or me. Before he went to jail, he was working a nine-to-five job and even ran his own pizza shop. The reason Andrew is in prison is for the commercial supply of magic mushrooms. In Australia, that's a Class A drug. But getting caught may well have saved his life. So, how do we weigh crimes in Australia today? Andrew's potential life sentence was curbed by the judge's approach to magic mushrooms. Whilst it is a Class A drug, it is in fact different to cocaine or heroin. What is the current state of the prison system? Is rehabilitation after prison possible? And what's it like to be incarcerated and on the other side of the bars? That's on today's episode of Motive and Method. Welcome to Motive and Method, the show where we unpack the motives and the methods surrounding criminal activity. I'm Tim Watson Munro. And I'm Dr. Xanthi Mallet. This week, we will be speaking with Andrew Hamilton, someone who has been through the prison system and offers a compelling insight into how one can end up in jail and how someone can move forward upon release. I'm looking forward to speaking with Andrew, hearing about his personal journey, his unique mechanism for reflecting on his experiences and how he is sharing his journey in a very public way. Andrew Hamilton, what a great pleasure to have you here. Thanks for having me, guys. A legendary bloke, a gourmet pizza chef, and then you took a trip onto the dark side with Magic Mushies. What happened? What was the result? Well, my, my house got raided by the New South Wales Organised Crime Squad, known as the Raptor Squad, in uh, on the 4th of June, 2021. And they had a search warrant to search my house and found a whole bunch of drugs that I had in the house. And I was charged with large commercial supply of magic mushrooms and the large commercial supply of LSD and a supply of MDMA and a supply of ketamine and cocaine. And so then I was sent to remand prison where I was in Park Lee for about two months. Isn't that a shocking place? Park Lee is a private jail and yeah. I, I thought it was shit house Compared to Long Bay, the facilities, the buildings are state-of-the-art at Park Lee, but the, the culture there is toxic. But then at Long Bay, it's the opposite. It's a rundown place, but at least the, the guards, the, the, the system there, they treat you far more reasonably. Well, they're all school. I mm. started my career a long time ago and I was there resident psychologist at Parramatta Jail, 
uh, a tough old jail back then and Parkley hadn't been thought about. Yeah. But I know what you're saying, the uh, the screws, the prison officers, back then they were ex-English military. Mm. Rules were rules but you could actually get on with them. Yeah. And I, I don't know that, I mean, it's a topic for another conversation but privatisation of jails I don't think works, you know. Yeah, well, for my limited experience just comparing those two, I thought it was the difference was night and day between a private prison and a public one. So uh, what happened? They remanded you or? That's right. So I was in remand for four months. Then I got granted bail because we got lucky. There was a temporary issue with my biggest charge with the mushrooms where they, they were saying that they were testing negative to psilocybin. So that got taken off. While well, that was taken off my charge list, we went for bail and got it. And then I was, was under, that Supreme Court bar. Uh, no, that was we, we had a change of circumstances because I, I had a change of lawyer, and because the charges had changed, um, there was enough of a change of circumstance for us to go back to to local, and we got it. And then I was under house arrest at my parents' place for about six months. Well, I was allowed to leave the house, but only if I was in the company of my parents who were both in their 70s. So I couldn't really go very far. How was that for you? Obviously, as a free-spirited guy, mm. you know, you not only cooked uh, pizzas for the gentry, but also their pet dogs. It must have been <laughs> quite different uh, under house arrest. Look, Did mum it, let you near the kitchen? Or? It, it, it was different, but I think after spending four months in prison, anything beat that. And sure. so there was a common area gym at my parents' place and a pool. So I was like, this, I can't really complain too much. No, no. I, was, I certainly had more freedoms than I did during my time at Long Bay and Park Lee. I want to take a step back though, because obviously we're here to talk about your experiences of prison and what happened afterwards. Mm. But what happened before that? Like, what's your history? We've just heard a snippet that, you know, we're going to hear about some pizzas and I'm particularly interested in the dog pizzas because I think my dog would appreciate those. But so where did you come from and how did you end up with the magic mushrooms, etc.? So I grew up in Sydney. The only time I didn't live in Sydney was when I went to Bathurst for three years to study communications. But when I was around 20, I went to Thailand and went to a place called Mushroom Mountain and Try. Is that in Phuket or somewhere no, else? No, it's called. It's an island called Copenhagen. Yeah, I've heard of it. And I tried magic mushrooms for the first time there and I had such an amazing experience with them that felt almost spiritual. You know, I was there with my best mates just excited about the adventure of life and these mushrooms were just so good that I came back and told my friend how good they were and he started figuring out how to grow them in small quantities and at first it was just enough for me and my friends to have them and that was great. It mushroomed from there. So. It did. Oh, boom. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> but, um, so over the course of 16 years that went from me helping out my mates with mushrooms to me having probably the biggest, um, being the biggest magic mushroom dealer in Sydney and by that stage I was selling a bunch of different stuff to people that were going on camping trips and people that were going to music festivals and even people going to the Vivid Light Festival would be one of the biggest selling series. Oh, wow. There's a big yeah. market for it, right? And Huge market and I was I had a bit of a monopoly to be honest because no one could really get them other than through me. So we would blend them up, we'd grow the mushrooms, we'd dehydrate them and then we'd put them in a blender, blend them up into a powder and put them into one gram capsules so that people knew how much they were taking. And also the taste of mushrooms is not fantastic. So by swallowing them as capsules, it meant you could know how much you're having and also um, bypass the negative taste. It's interesting what you say about spiritual awakening. I mean, there's two things on that. Um, Aldous Huxley wrote about the corridors of perception 
and how his first LSD trip and how it just changed his whole perception of the world uh, and opened doors that he never believed existed. And as you're probably aware now, um, some psychiatrists can prescribe hallucinogens for seriously depressed people and so on. So it's a natural kind of evolution. Um, but your business grew. Absolutely. I mean, there were people that were using mushrooms recreationally to have a lot of fun. That was m most people. But there were certainly people that were using it more in the medicinal sense that um, is the reason why they're being legalized now because there's finally recognition of MDMA and psilocybin um, as, as having um, health benefits um, for certain people. So I'd have people that would buy magic mushrooms off me and use them to, to microdose or um, – that they found that that helped them with their mood, depression, even with concentration. Um, there were guys that would have them in preparation for marathons because they felt that they were more in tune with their body. There was all kinds of That's reasons. That's fascinating. I didn't realise that. And, of course, we're not advocating, just for all our listeners, but, you know, this is obviously the world that you got quite embedded in. Yes. But you must have realised you, you're becoming now known as the man, you know, to get these mushrooms from. You must have realised, though, there was a, a risk in that that the police would also find out what Totally, doing. but I'd been doing it for so long by that stage and my whole system, the reason why I had grown up over time to be as big as it was was because it was only ever friends and friends of friends and everyone had to vouch for whoever they were recommending. So it was a, 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 a trust network and people knew if they introduced me to someone who turned out to be a dickhead, then their friend would get banned and they would get banned. And so that, that happened, I think in 16 years, I probably had to ban two people. Ever. But was it undercover people that eventually no, got it was, on to? No, not at all. I I reckon I would have never been caught if it wasn't for like my ex-fiance had a mental breakdown. She'd had too much cocaine on a bender and ran off and told the police. Um, sh she ran off and got picked up by the police in, a, in Cronulla and she had a bunch of my cash and drugs on her. And she told them that I was a massive drug dealer and got, and the house got raided after that. But they mustn't have investigated much because they didn't get the second house I had, which was full of drugs and cash, and they didn't get, um, and they didn't get any of the guys I was working with. So um, in terms of the investigation, it must have been just a tip off and bang, raid of the house. How was the raid for you? I mean, it must have... Um... It was unexpected. Challenging. <laughs> but that's what I mean. Like, you've been doing this a long time, sure. You're feeling quite safe. You have this trust network. But, you know, you, you must have realised there was a risk that what you were doing was highly illegal and that if somebody did say something, mm. then obviously, you know, all the evidence is there in your house. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I I didn't that, – that, I made a couple of mistakes that week because I was just – I was a coke addict myself. I was just, usually I'd have most of my stuff at another house so that if I ever did get raided, I wouldn't leave myself too exposed to serious charges. But yeah, coke can scramble your brain a bit. Yes. Yes, it can. And so, yeah, I think I wasn't really thinking too far ahead with that. But but in terms of the, the other risks, uh, I guess... I'd rationalise my, with myself that alcohol and gambling in my head were far more damaging than most of the drugs that I was involved with. So morally, I didn't feel like I was doing anything hugely wrong. And then in terms of the, the risk of being arrested, I was 
everyone that came to see me, I, I prided myself on always having exceptional customer service. I never thought that it would be because someone would want to fuck me over because I always, my, I always focused on selling good drugs at good prices and if anyone was ever unhappy, I would either refund them or, uh, or replace the drugs. So that's the system I'd had that was working for 16 years and then it was uh, turned out to be <laughs> my ex-fiancee that was the one that took me down. So did they actually charge you over 16 years or just possession? It was just deemed supply for the yeah. stuff I had in my house, you know. They didn't have any evidence of any supply other than uh, what was in the house. That's what also showed me that there wasn't any kind of thorough investigation done into any of this. It was just got some information, bang, house raided. So you're raided and then bail refused presumably. Yes. And straight out to Park Lee. Yep. How was that for you? when that prison door slammed? Um, it felt surreal for a while and it also, it had all happened so quickly. Yeah, I think it took a while for it to to sink in, like this is, this is my new life. But the hardest part of the entire prison experience was those first two weeks because you get put into prison quarantine, right? So it's COVID, right? Yeah, because I was in COVID quarantine and you're in your cell, um, at least for the, for the first four days, you don't even leave your cell at all. And then after that, you're allowed out of your cell for about half an hour a day. And I had no TV for the first 10, 11 days, nothing to Just read. solitary confinement. Yeah. I mean, you had a cellmate and natural oh, light. Okay. but Which is a bit crazy when you think about it. So, you know, COVID isolation. Mm. Um, why they'd put you in with somebody else, but and, just... and it was and that was a time where it was the hardest because I was just stuck in my own thoughts and particularly after after that, yeah, that's the last place you want to be. So that was the hardest time I did. I've worked in jails for decades, you know, but our listeners may not fully understand what a prison cell's like. Mm. Walk us through that. How was that solitary for you? Uh, so you've got two small kind of single beds that were against the. The walls, you have uh, both got a kind of window and and blinds on the on the windows. You've got a small shower in one corner that when you turn it on, uh, hot water will work for about seven minutes before the shower gets cut off. You've got... So there's no privacy, obviously. You've got a no, shower, no privacy. There. There's a toilet in there. And for the first four days, you can't even leave your cell at all. So you have to shit in front of each other with you and your cellmate. This, mm. this stranger that you've just been put in this cell with. Yeah. So, you know, you obviously turn around when they're um, using the shitter, but, um, you know, you can't escape the sounds of the smell. This is 21st century <laughs> custodial life, folks. It's quite extraordinary. I don't think it's advanced much from really Dickens' time. I remember when I worked at Parramatta, it was mm. the same thing. And back before then, a lot of these cells didn't have sewage. Yeah, I've heard about, you know, buckets, guys have yeah. been shit in buckets and very no air conditioning or anything like that. But uh, that was the first cells that you get put in at Park Lee. Then I got moved to a, uh, a shittier wing after quarantine and that, that they're much more cramped. There's no shelving, so you've got hardly anywhere to put any of your belongings, the bare, you know, the, the, the bare belongings that you have and you've got to try and hide your, your, your buy up your grocery food that you buy because otherwise if guys walk past and see that you've got good stuff, you're likely to either have guys try and stand you over or try and rob you. So you've got to try and fi- hide that as best you can. And then uh, at, at Long Bay Jail, you don't even have a shower in your cell. You have your showers in the yard. So, so you have to shower in front of everybody. Well, there, there, so there are small doors that are about up, up to your about waist, 
So if a guy wants to walk up and have a look at you, he can. But what you find is particularly the mid- Middle Eastern guys in the wing are, are, I guess, sensitive about their modesty. So what they'll do at the start of the day is tie up bed sheets across most of the showers so that then you just join the queue and at least then you've got some privacy. Pretty confronting. I read in your bio you're a private school boy. Where did you go to school? I went to Riverview, St. Ignatius College. Yeah, a GPS boy. Yes. So I went to grammar, but you guys always cheated at football, but it's a long time ago. <laughs> Don't hold time. that again. No, 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 no. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that was like the first thing that the Daily Mail uh, wanted to, to, when they covered my story, mm. it was like, you know, it said from pizza man to party drug king and in it it's like private school boy arrested. They love a fall from grace story involving but a private school boy. I, I guess my point about mm. that is you've gone from an exceptionally elite kind of school. Were you a boarder mm. or a day boarder? Yeah, I was a boarder. Great life, presumably. Beautiful grounds at Riverview. Well, in some uh, ways it wasn't that different to prison. <laughs> that, I was, that's my point. Yeah. You know, that yeah. maybe being a boarder, in some ways conditioned mm. you for jail, but it's a different sort of cell entirely, isn't it? I, I spoke to my uncle about the time I, I um, spent in, in prison and he said it sounded a lot to him like his time in the army. I speak to a lot of guys that had have had horrifying experiences in prison or, or seen horrible things happen. That didn't happen to me. Once I got past the quarantine part and just mentally accepted that I was in prison and probably going to be there for a long time, I started to have a good time. (laughs) I exercised, I sobered up. When everyone was in the COVID lockdown in Sydney, I was playing touch footy against other prison wings in prison. Because they're all clear. Mm. Did you put on much weight? No, I lost weight. I was quite fat when I got arre- when I got arrested, so right. I, I got That's fitter. That's a lifestyle, right? Because you're mm. you're saying you're a coke addict, so you're mm. not looking after yourself in any way. At this not point. at all. No, I was doing. Well, about... often with coke, you don't eat; you lose weight. Well, um, I, I I was doing. I, I so I do. I was doing about ten thousand dollars of coke a week for whoa. for years. And that's, uh, that's a significant habit. Mm, I was doing. Yeah, and that's wholesale prices. Um, so I was doing probably about an ounce and a half of coke up my nose every week. And so you're obviously going to prison. You said you got sober, so you got off that in prison. So it did you a favour in a way. It did. I, yeah, absolutely. I, I I haven't touched a drug now in what's it been since June 2021. It may have saved your life in some ways. I, I Yeah, I, I believe that as well. I mean, I certainly wouldn't have the positive life that I have now if I didn't get locked up. So, uh, you know, I, I often say to people, um, you know, I'm, I'm – broken living with my parents, but I'm the happiest I've ever been. <laughs> well, I'm curious about that. So you're saying you got the happiest life now. How mm. did you find it when you came out? So you went through that experience, you got sober, mm-hmm. you got fit, you started looking after yourself, you come out. Mm. Now you've got this conviction. Yep. So how was life for you when you came out? Because you went from successful, like you were, didn't you run a PR company, communications company yes. and, the, and the pizza business where mm. you made pizzas for dogs? Yes. And then, you know, you're in prison. And so so life has shifted again. You've been through some serious ups and downs. Absolutely. Uh, look, I, I, I accept that I have lived, and even now after getting out of prison, a very privileged life in that I have had a lot of good friends and family stick by me and support me through this, which a lot of guys don't have when they get out of prison. And so then you can see why they get back into a cycle of just going back into prison a time and time again. In in the yards I was in in Long Bay, I think I was, out of 80 blokes, me and one of the blokes were like the only guys in prison for the first time. Everyone else was second, third, fourth, fifth time. But Yeah, they're what, the universities of higher crime, aren't they? Absolutely. But I got out and I was out of prison for four days and I, I had a mate come over and offer me a job, you know? Oh, wow. So it was like, this is, I, I am 
being afforded luxuries that a lot of guys don't get. And so I got offered a, a gainful employment pretty much straight away. Doing um, what? Uh, working for uh, an event management company and I was able right. to do that work from home while under house arrest. So that was very, very fortunate. And then I also had the opportunity when I was locked up to think, uh, just have that hard conversation because I felt for a while like my life was over, like I was just sitting on the sidelines of my life and I thought if I could do this all over again, what would I have done this um, while you were in prison, you're reflecting mm, on your what you've done. Well, not so, not so much on what I'd done, but what what I would have done differently. And for some reason, the number one answer was pursue stand up comedy. <laughs> this came to you when you were sober. Yes. Yeah. So I so, made a promise to myself that when I got out, I would start doing stand up comedy. And so as soon as I was able to change my bail conditions. I started doing it and I've been doing it pretty much every night ever since. So you weren't a comedian in prison then? That's not... No, I mean, you try and you don't want to do too much to draw attention no, to yourself no, you in don't there. Be, you don't want well, to be see, funny I was guy. curious about that because I wondered when I when I read your bio and it said that you did stand-up comedy, mm. I wondered whether you, you developed that or did that in prison as a kind of almost a protective risky, factor. It's a risky game to try and be funny in prison because if a guy takes it the wrong way... Yeah, you're dead <laughs> or beaten yeah. up. So, no, I try to be the opposite. I try to be invisible in prison. I try to just get along with everyone but not, not draw attention to myself. And look, a, a lot of guys in there, everyone treated me great. I mean, I was in there on what were considered fine charges. Obviously, if you're in there for ones that are considered putrid crimes, like such as child rape. sex, yeah, yeah. child sex, rape, if you're a police informant, anything like that, then you need that those guys get put into the boneyard protection straight away. But luckily, you know, I wasn't starting dramas. I wasn't talking shit. I wasn't racking up drug debts and I was in there on magic mushrooms. So guys thought I was, they thought that that was funny. So yeah, I was, I was fine. Well, you don't see a lot of guys in jail for hallucinogens like that. No. I did a case a while back of a guy who had more than you. Mm -hmm. um, and I was thinking, you know, over all these decades of assessing people, I could count on one hand the number of people I've assessed with, you know, magic mushrooms and going to jail. It's, and yet what you're saying, if I understand it, is that there's a real market out there that people kind of enjoy it, but it's, it's different to the coke market because they go off and you know, trip at home or trip in the bushes that don't cause problems. That's absolutely right. People would plan ahead for mushrooms. They don't, they're not addictive. You just, you didn't have to have mushrooms every day. You just choose your, choose your circumstances, the events when you wanted to have mm. mushrooms. People would go away and have a fantastic time with their friends. And sometimes people come back to give me a hug, say, thank you. I had the best time on mushrooms. Life-changing uh, potentially. Yeah. yeah. So I guess Jar would have seemed like a really bad acid trip when you were there initially, but it sounds like you've turned it into a big positive. I, I think to your question before about whether it screwed up my ability to get work after, I, I thought that I was never going to be able to get a white collar job again. And so I thought instead, and I was thinking about doing stand-up comedy and I thought, well, why don't I, I just do the craziest thing I can think of and get up on stage and start doing jokes about getting arrested and going to prison and just own the shit out of it. You know? And so that's what you did? Yeah. So I just started owning my life and positioning myself as the crime comedian and doing jokes about the Raptor Squad and about mushrooms and about all things to do with, you know, my life before and after prison. And I've been doing that now for a year and it's been going great. People love it. A any cops in the audience? I 
Most of my followers on social media on TikTok are either bikies, prison officers, or cops. Uh, and I know that because you know some of them have their bikie name in their in their name on TikTok. And I've had a bunch of prison officers come to shows to come see me at shows. And I had a time recently where I came out of a gig in Newtown and three guys walked past me and they turned around and they pointed at me and they, they go, are you that TikTok guy? And I go, yeah. And then they lifted their shirts. They all had guns and they were all undercover cops and they asked if I could get a selfie with me. Oh, wow. <laughs> and yeah. I was like, you guys were the same people doing bail checks at my house at three in the morning a few weeks ago. And they were like, oh, it wasn't us, man. And I'm like, it's funny how the world changes. <laughs> it you know, does. In- but, you know, you've got a great energy about you and you own your behaviour. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, very important, I think, in terms of getting back onto the the mainstream groove, you know. Um, and I think I, I think the fact that you have got cops watching you on TikTok kind of gets to the heart of like I how we weigh different crimes. Mm. Like I think the fact that yours related to mushrooms and that's seen differently perhaps than somebody who's who's dealing coke. Well, I mean, I was selling coke as well and and ketamine and, and MDMA, all these things. But um, look, I, I think that there are a lot of cops that can separate the kind of the, the, the crime from the, the bloke. Like they can, if, as long as you're not doing crime anymore, then you're okay because yeah. they're only trying to do their job of stopping the crimes that are the law at the time. So you, you touched on there about how crimes are weighed in prison. So obviously you were, you know, everyone thought yours was quite funny because it related mostly to mushrooms, but you had the different hierarchy. So that's something you saw played out very practically when yes. you were inside. I did. Yeah, so I, I saw a couple of instances of, of violence relating to that. I got locked away um, stupidly at Park Lee. I got my cellmate and I locked away because I said I had a cold and just asked for a Panadol. And so they uh, didn't give me a Panadol, but they locked me and my cellmate away for three days pending a COVID test. I thought you were like a rat in the bubonic play. My cellmate was like, don't fucking say anything, don't say anything. And then I did to try and get a Panadol and we got locked away for three days and I didn't get a Panadol ever. And he was like, you idiot. And then when I got out, the other inmates were like, next time you have a problem, come see us. We'll help you better than the, the guards will. That was at Park Lee. But the next cell over from me was covered in police tape and it was covered in blood all over the floor because a guy had put his charge sheet in the bin and charges related to assaulting a baby. Oh. And his cellmate had said to him, mate, you've got fucking five seconds to go to the boneyard or otherwise like it's on. And then he refused to go. And next thing you know, some guys came in and smashed him. But that's... That's considered normal. Well, that's what um, happens. Yeah. There was another guy at Long Bay who I spent the day, I was walking to court with him and so I was staring at the back of his head and then he was on the news that night as getting sentenced and he was just in the, in the yard. He'd been like, popular and he'd been a sweeper. So like, he had a, a senior job in the wing and uh, for like over a, a year and a half and then he got sentenced for bashing and robbing the elderly. Oh, and yeah. so the Go next well day either. in the yard, you could hear guys planning to get him. They were like, as soon as he comes into the yard, you grab him and I'll do it. And you, and then he, he the, the guards. And I'll do it means getting stabbed or just having the bejesus kicked out of him? Uh, either or. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. But the guards were either onto it or, or he knew because he never came out to the yard. He was moved straight away. But, um, yeah, I think with those things, things can get dangerous very quickly. Also, I think because, of you know, there's a lot of drugs in jail now. 
I mean, BUP's the currency, isn't it? BUP for morphine. Yep, the price of BUP skyrocketed during COVID because, I mean, it was still getting in, but it was just getting in at a much smaller rate. So because, supply and demand issues. Yeah, because um, family visits were, were, were stopped for months. So, I mean, that was one way they were getting in. I saw other ways, which I can't talk about, but yeah, there were plenty of drugs still getting into prisons. But yeah, the, the prices skyrocketed. So that led to tensions between buyers and sellers. And so I, I just stay clear of all of that. Wise move. It's, a, it's an extraordinary currency and hierarchy. Back in the day when I worked in prisons, the top of the hierarchy were tank men, safe crackers. Are they still around or mm. not so much these days, not such great cash, are you? Not really. I mean, the only guy I've spoken to about cracking safes was Abbo Henry and he's uh, yeah, well, 72. That's right? my point, right? <laughs> that's my point. I mean, there's, yeah. there's more money in drugs, mm. isn't yeah, there? Yeah, absolutely. That sort of stuff. But it's very interesting how things evolve. When I worked at Parramatta, there were no real drugs, although the last year I worked there, three guys were murdered over drug wars. Heron was mm. just starting to come into prisons then. But the major drug of choice was home brew. They'd cook up this dreadful sort of alcohol out of pineapple skins and whatever, and they'd drink it on Saturdays and listen to the races. Mm. Changed a lot. I, I, I drank some home brew at Park Lee. It was, <laughs> it was not great. It was like a sweet porridge that I could feel the effects of alcohol, but it, I was like, the juice ain't worth the squeeze. You know, it was it was not tasty. And I was like, smelt. I'd rather wait till I get out and get a beer. Yeah. So um, what now? So now, uh, you know, I, I'm working a day job in event management and I – do comedy most nights of the week and Where I... Where do you perform? All over Sydney. So mm. I did the comedy store for uh, for a week-long run a few weeks ago, which was pretty exciting, uh, which is the best venue in the country. Uh, I do it all at like pubs and clubs all across New South Wales, but mainly inner Sydney. You've, you've kind of come out the other side mm. with a positive... Absolutely. I had a good time compared to many and I am very upbeat about it because I wouldn't be doing the amazing things that I get to do now if I didn't go to prison. You might right? have killed so, yourself with coke, to be honest. I, quite possibly I would have uh, had a heart attack at 45 laying on a pile of cash, you know. It would have been a pretty miserable, well, mate, ignominious happens. end. Yes, so I do that and then I, I do a podcast where I interview people about times when their life went to shit and how they recovered from it and... Uh, because I was trying to think of one which rings true to me. So is that how you describe your life? Your life went to shit and then you kind of come out the other side? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty philosophical about it now because uh, I, I feel like I should have always done comedy but I was too much of a pussy to try it and I also I didn't have anything to talk about but going to prison gave me a lot to talk about. And so What now, about at Riverview? Were you a <laughs> bit of a stand-up there? Because uh, those schools lend it to that sort of thing, you know? Yeah, I was a... I was a Fun-loving troublemaker. But back you then, were but you were one of the naughty kids, weren't yeah, you? Yeah, I was. Yeah, but, yeah. But uh, you could thing, be on our team, Tim. We were the naughty <laughs> kids too. Yeah. Yeah. I think well, one of the things that I like about my life and about comedy now is that I I try to use it as a vehicle to show guys like I could have just as easily come out and just kept doing what I was doing before. I could have a drug operation back up and running in 72 hours, but I choose not to because, well, firstly, I just got bored of it. But secondly, I, I couldn't do that to my friends and family again. But I also just want to be able to show uh, guys that are in this cycle of crime that, like, you can get out and do something else. But Most... you were lucky in the, that you had friends and family stuck by you. Absolutely. Whereas 
A lot of people who come out of prison don't have that. They don't have anyone. They don't have stable housing. You went to your mum and dad. Mm. That's great. You didn't have to worry about where your next meal was coming from. Totally. There's guys in prison that can't get bail because they have no home to get yeah. bail mm. to, right? Yeah. And you think, fuck, like, mate, that, that poor bastard is in a much tougher set of circumstances. Yeah, I, I totally get that. All I can do is just be an example that, that hey, there is another option because most of the guys that I was close to that got out of prison since I was in there are either back in jail already and the one I was closest to, who was my cellmate in about four or five different prison wings, he got bail and he killed himself. And so not lost on me that I'm in a, I'm in a minority already um, just of the people that I was close to. Did he suicide because he just couldn't cope on the outside? Or maybe I, what he was looking at. I think that that was certainly a factor. I think he just couldn't see um, light at the end of the tunnel with the, the um, sentence that he was. He believed that he was looking at. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, so I, do you think that's partly then maybe what inspired you to show people that there is light, you know, that there can be a way out? I think that's absolutely a factor. Yeah, yeah there is for some. Yeah. Um, for some, like your mate who died, it, I, that absolute sort of existential despair, mm. you can understand why I think, look, I'm going to do 20 years in a place that I've just been bailed from for a short period of time. Mm. You, you can understand it, particularly with the conditions you've described in maximum security jail. But, you know, you've run with the ball. You've had the insight. Um, you're obviously a highly intelligent, creative guy, but not using mushrooms, coke, ketamine, MDMA, you must be thinking more clearly mm. and so you can more effectively, I think, critically evaluate all the stuff that got you into that point in the first place, yeah? Yeah, I think uh, I was a gambling addict from about the age of 17, 18 and so that was all part of this as a vicious cycle that I kept wanting to sell drugs to just finance just living because I was pissing away so much on pokies and on and everything else. It was all part of a, a cycle that, that made me continue to be a bigger and bigger drug dealer. Well, the neurochemistry is the same, you know. Gambling addicts have the same sort of dopamine rush as people do when they have a, a line of cocaine. So. so how did you cope with that in prison when you've got all of your addictions taken away from you? Mm. What did you replace that with or how did you manage that? Did you become a gym bot? Uh, yeah, what I, I just I found other things to focus on. A lot of those addictions are only, were only addictions when they were right in front of me. I wasn't sitting there missing gambling in prison. I wasn't missing cocaine in prison. It was only because that was when just, it's available. When it was available, and I just was bored. They were the things that I would lean on. But when prison, I read and exercised and um, socialized and watched TV and and tried to just do things to better myself. And so, now I use comedy as an addiction. That's I do it so many nights a week, and that's like a healthy. And, and you get a rush from that. Because Absolutely, of the response you get. Yeah, I was going to ask you. I mean, there, there's been a lot of. De talk about in this country and it's happening overseas, the decriminalisation of some drugs. Mm -hmm. Look at places like Portugal, for example. Yeah. The jails are emptying, you mm -hmm. know, and the money that's um, previously been used to support all that infrastructure has now been put into education and public health. What are your views about decriminalising some drugs? I'm absolutely in support of it. Yeah. I don't believe that the existing approach has done fuck all to stop the flow of drugs but also people using drugs. Nobody I know that chooses to do drugs goes, oh, shit, I better not because it's illegal. You know, they, 
that's not part of the considerations. I don't think if you decriminalised or legalised heroin, the people that I know that have never done heroin before are going to suddenly go, oh, I might try it now. I think it's all about letting people make adult decisions and educating them on the risks associated with all these things so that they can make up their own decisions. But I, I... I think drugs should be treated as a health issue, not a criminal issue. Well, like pill testing, I think it goes to that too, doesn't it? I think at you know at festivals we should be pill testing. I agree. Give people like if they're going to do it, you want to make sure that they're not doing it something that's going to lives. kill them. Exactly, and all it does at the moment with cops is scare people, and they they swallow mm. all their pills quickly. And who knows what's in it? Well, we do know what's in it sometimes, mm. and it yeah. Well, a lot of the time it's not MDMA. Mm. But the, the other thing, of course, is, and I see it frequently in my practice, young kids mm. picked up, you know, in Surrey Hills in Sydney, certain hotels they come out of, they've got a bag of cocaine, mm. they're looking at having a criminal record for the rest of their lives. But it might just be experimentation. Mm. It might be a silly decision on the night. I've had a few of those. Yep. Never done it before, but a bloke offered me a bag of cocaine and he's just in the wrong place at the wrong time, we need to do more, I think, in terms of educating people. And, you know, the war on drugs has been lost. Really. Absolutely. I don't, think it, I don't think it was ever close. <clears throat> but, I mean, I sold drugs to mostly wealthy professional people for many years. We're talking mm. people that are doctors, lawyers, journalists, musicians, like all kinds of walks of life. These are all educated, successful people that are just like socially to have recreational drugs mm. and it's a shitload of them and I don't think that any of these people are bad people for doing that. I, I, I think it's no different to drinking alcohol. I think alcohol actually does far more harm both for yourself in terms of harm to self and harm to others that I just, the, the, the life experience I've had from using and selling illegal drugs mm. um, has led me to believe that they, they are no more harmful, particularly the ones I was involved with. I'm not talking about ice or heroin or something like that. The ones I was involved with are no more harmful than a lot of the things that are legal. Andrew, a great pleasure. Thanks for making yourself available. No worries. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Yes, and, um, very eclectic conversation. <laughs> <laughs> That's my life. Thanks, mate. <laughs> no worries at all. Thanks for having me. Great to meet you. You Thanks too. Thank much. you. That was a really insightful chat with Andrew. Hearing about his privileged background and how he got involved in the supply of drugs and ultimately how prison may have saved his life. A positive story. Although, as we have heard, for the vast majority, things end very differently. And that's all we have time for today. Thank you for listening to Motive and Method. And remember, if you're loving the show, you can give us a review, you can subscribe to our channel and feed, and you can recommend us to friends and family. You can also set up a bell notification alert so that you'll know first when a new episode is available. I'm Tim Watson Munro. And I'm Dr. Xanthi Mallet, and we'll be back next week with a new episode. <laughs>